0: Thanks for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Tonight they used to be a familiar sight in many Canadian communities, but laundromats are fading from the landscape. We find out why you should care, regardless of where you wash your clothes. Gas stoves are suddenly under fire after a report that a US Consumer Commission was considering a nationwide ban. Well, they've clarified to say that's just not going to happen. But what are the health concerns about their impacts on indoor health quality? And what can you do about it? Opposition parties in Ottawa are joining forces to take a closer look into the federal Liberal government's relationship with a major multinational consulting firm called McKinsey. Reports found that contracts with the firm for federal work jumped from just $2.2 million under Stephen Harper to $66 million in less than seven years under the current one. Why, and are we getting our money's worth? But first, the Federal Aviation Administration in the U.S. issued its first countrywide ground stop today since 9-11, halting all flights for several hours after a key FAA computer system crashed. How could that happen? And what does it say about the vulnerability of the systems that airlines and agencies continue to use? Well, first up, uh, if you were watching what was happening in the U.S. today, you would have seen it was another day of... uh, chaos for air travelers uh millions of passengers were hit by these delays uh, and cancellations right at the beginning of the day and this time it wasn't the weather to blame Uh, instead the problem was a computer outage at the federal aviation administration that brought domestic flights right across the country they had a ground stop order we hadn't seen one of those since 9-11 uh the country was brought to a complete standstill uh the, the the skies at least um well, well, they tried to figure out what it was. So by the end of the day, they figured out there was about 1,300 flights canceled, 9,000 delayed, um, according to FlightAware. And uh, and obviously that impacted Canada as well. Here is passenger Chris Wickland, who had slept at Denver's airport to make his 6 a.m. flight this morning, only to find out he wasn't going anywhere.
1: And then I saw that FAA was ground stopping all the
2: flights. And I was like, oh, is this like another Southwest situation where like it affects one an airline? Um, and then I, then I figured out it was every single flight in the nation was ground stopped. And I was like, oh.
0: So what was it? Something called the Notice to Air Mission System. That is the FAA's computer system that compiles and distributes essential safety information for pilots. It went down. It's been around for more than half a century. It went from being, you know, papers and phones to computers. It's in the process of being updated but failed in the meantime along with its backup system. Uh, it had an impact here. Our transport minister, Omar al Gabra says he had been or said earlier today that he'd been in touch with his U.S. counterparts.
1: The good news is that I'm hearing that uh, uh, traffic has uh, restarted again. So uh, we're going to stay in uh, in coordination with our U.S. partners to understand what had happened and what it was, what can we do to avoid similar interruptions.
0: The FAA said on Wednesday night or said tonight that it had traced the outage to a damaged database file and that there was no evidence that this was a cyber attack. But of course, uh, it raises lots of questions. I mean, why was there no redundancy? This is the FAA, after all. Critics in the past have said the FAA has really struggled with underfunding and its ability to try to keep up or at least keep its systems modern. But we've seen other IT outages as well. You think back to the Big Rogers uh, outage here in Canada over the summer and think, wait a second, what's up with these systems? Well, joining me now with more on the aviation aspect of this is Stephen Segraves. He's the host of the podcast called Dots, Lions and Destinations. He's an aviation journalist. Thanks so much for your time tonight. Thanks, Ben. Thanks for having me. So this was a bit of a shocker just because I think we're under the impression that all these systems must have a backup, right? (laughs) yeah
3: i I think they should i think most i think most people think they should and i think we assume that they do
0: so what happened i mean we saw this went down uh this was a ground stop order which is which is particular again we hadn't seen one in 20 years um or more than 20 years so what exactly happened it's, it's this notam system i wasn't familiar with it until today
3: yeah, so the, the NOTAM system really is uh, a, a system to give pilots the most up-to-date information um, and airlines as well, the most updating, the updated information for airports around the country and around the world. Um, and that system uses uh, an old uh, way of communicating that dates back to 1924, um, and it hasn't been updated uh, because of uh, just, I think it's costly and it's uh, it costs a lot of money and people can't Uh, get their heads around how much money it's going to cost to update all of these systems. Um, And so what happened was today we saw airlines have to make a decision to cancel flights uh, because of the ground stop. They just couldn't keep up at different airports. Uh, And that ground stop was necessary to make uh, the systems uh, talk to each other. They basically were doing this by hand. Uh, I heard stories of of, uh, certain airlines going with uh, spreadsheets that were being passed around the office uh, with the the latest NOTAM information on them, um, so not not a great look for the FAA uh, for sure. Uh, I will be really interested to see what comes out of the investigation as the root cause. when I mean, they're telling us it's a, it was a database uh, problem, but why was that database uh, why did it not have like a hot swap available to actually you know switch over to when this went down? Because to be clear, this actually went down. the the NOTAM system went down in the United States. Uh, around 3:30 p.m. Eastern Time yesterday, so that wow. would be the 10th of January,
0: right? So, but I guess a lot of those the notams had already been produced for yesterday, so it didn't really we didn't see the impact of it till today.
3: Exactly, and I and I think the FAA was hoping that they would have the system back up and running uh, before midnight when kind of those notams flipped back over to, uh, to, to 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 come up for the next day, and that that didn't happen. Uh, I was watching this late until the evening, and it, and it wasn't there was no progress being made.
0: Um, I mean, it's been a terrible few weeks for for air travelers right across this continent, hasn't it? I mean, it's, you know, there must be a lot of questions. I mean, we've been asking these questions here now for a while. I mean, there was a lot of chaos at airports over the summer. It feels like the system is just buckling and we're seeing it happen all over the place.
3: Yeah, I, I think as as we get more weather events, as we get uh, more travelers, like the, the impacts of these things continue to to, to grow. Right. So a delay in one airport that is a large airport, say JFK or Vancouver in in Canada, uh, that has ripple effects as planes get stacked up in other places. And so these delays get worse and there's more people traveling. So airlines are doing more uh, to move people around. And any kind of uh, bump in the system uh, impacts a lot more people than you would expect.
0: You said 1924, right, for the FAA system. I mean, you know, Correct. the rest of us around the world look to the FAA as being perhaps the premier um, aviation administration on the planet. It's it seems incredible that it's using technology that was that's a hundred years old now. It, it is, um, it, but it, you have to
3: remember what was going on. They were looking for a quick way uh, back in 1924 and, and forward uh, to quickly give uh, short notices. To airlines and, and, and airmen at the time, it was called notice to, to airmen back then, um, and they wanted a quick way to do that. And the quickest way to do that was with short five-bit character uh, uh, messages that they could they could send via radio. Um, and so that system was kept in place. And, you know, back in 1963, the world shifted to an ASCII system so you could have upper and lowercase letters. Uh, and uh, did, none of the NOTAM systems followed that. So we could have we gotten more characters and more information, uh, but we didn't. So I think there's a really big push to, to modernize the NOTAM system. Um, but, again, it's a cost. It's about cost and what what's it work. And I think today um, kind of highlighted that it might, it might be worth it.
0: Yeah, because I think what a lot of um, you know, frequent flyers or others might be asking themselves is if there's no redundancy, if this whole system just crashed uh with no backup. And we had I was mentioning an incident here in Canada over the summer when a major telecom company had something very similar happen to them. Um when there is no redundancy redundancy, you start to ask questions about the other systems that may not have redundancies, ones that might be uh have a more significant impact, other than just delays like we saw today.
3: Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I think uh, we've seen uh, issues with the FAA uh, with air traffic control centers. So parts of the country that are controlled by the FAA kind of they're, they're split up into chunks around the country. There was one uh, just a few weeks ago in Florida uh, that happened right on the heels of the Southwest incident um, where it basically closed Florida airspace from uh, Orlando south. So planes weren't taking off or uh, arriving uh, back down into Miami, et-, et cetera, because of an FAA, basically a cut cable somewhere. Um, yeah, these systems need to be redundant. We need our infrastructure to be reliable, um, and this goes for for things like telecommunications and for uh, you know power and gas. I think uh, I think we we as Americans and as as the world we should be pushing for infrastructure as as priority number one. Uh,
0: really, what I was curious about talking about is just the kind of issues we've been seeing, IT issues we've been seeing, uh, not only airlines, lots of different uh, companies have been hit by these recently, but airlines seems to have a real impact. Um, I was, obviously, Southwest, one of the reasons they had such a chaotic few weeks there was they too had a big problem with a uh, computer system that was a scheduling system, I believe. You have to ask yourself whether airlines are have the proper you know, proper software or hardware to function sometimes. <laughs>
3: That's a, it's a great question. I mean, I think people would be surprised to know uh, a lot of airlines still run mainframes at some level of their operation. Uh, not all, but but a, a good chunk of airlines do. And so those systems uh, have been updated over the years. Uh, some have been modernized to to modern servers and and things like that with modern software. Um, and but some of those those software products probably haven't been updated in 20 years. So uh, they're running on software from the early 2000s, mid-2000s, uh, and that's what we saw at Southwest.
0: How about for this one today? I mean, there'll be a, obviously there'll be an investigation, but uh, there are certainly going to be some questions here as to exactly what could have gone wrong to force something as, as major as a, as a full ground stop.
3: Yeah, I think I think the system, the NOTAM system itself, is is fairly simplistic um, when you think about how how it works and it takes in uh, basically information from around around the country and the world about uh, the conditions at an airport uh, and whether or not there's there's hazards there. Uh, there's been a lot of complaints from pilots and airlines uh, over the years that the the NOTAM system is um, it's 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 too much information uh, that's being fed to them, like birds in the area. Well, yeah, there's birds around airports. Uh, or there's cranes nearby. Um, those those things are put in there because it's it's uh, a risk. Um, but at the same time, it's not always the most pertinent information or important information. Uh, most pilots want to know if the airport they're coming they're coming into is going to be closed, or if uh, they're going to be shot at when they're when they're going to be landing. So they they those are the types of things that pilots want to see. They really want to see the information be relevant to to what they're doing, and uh, don't necessarily need to see. Uh, every single detail uh, of of deal- going on at, at an airport
0: yeah, they need some curation i, I was reading that the, one of the one of the things people have been requesting is to keep, make the ever put the most pertinent information at the top and uh, because uh, there was an incident I believe where some of that information was missed and it almost led to an accident. But I would imagine that in this case you can't fly i mean they couldn't let anyone fly if this information wasn't being provided. Yeah, because I mean, you're missing a
3: full day's worth of uh, important information today, right? So when it when this went down yesterday, uh, you were basically coming into a fresh day where air, airports uh, were posting their NOTAMs. So if if a runway was closed, or if uh, they had had issues with with birds or wildlife on the runway, or or whatever it would be, um, that information would was not going to be published, and the, the the FAA simply could not let planes start taking off uh, without that information available. Um, A lot of international flights still came in because that information had been uh, published uh, previously for them and they were in in contact with the towers at the airports that they were going to. But putting new airplanes in the air uh, without this information would, would have been a big
2: mistake.
0: So I imagine we'll get some answers. I mean, the FAA tonight already saying that they wasn't, I mean, a lot of speculation about this being some sort of uh, cyber attack. It doesn't seem to have been that, but it certainly lays bare some vulnerabilities on that front too.
3: Yeah, I think, I think it's an overall just, I, I think it's going to bring eyes to, to what is needed uh, to modernize the system. And maybe it'll expand those eyes to be everything around the FAA that it should really have a budget that can support uh, constant operations. I mean, the FAA operates 24-7 uh, all year round, uh, all during the holidays, bad weather, good weather. Um, so they need to be available for uh, you know, pilots and airlines to uh, get good information.
0: I guess we should point out that given all of that, they do do quite the remarkable job because none of us ever noticed major problems. There's the odd one, but this was the first time something really crashed on them and it wasn't really, we don't know whose fault it was, but it doesn't seem to have been necessarily the staff at the FAA's fault. And they seem to do great work with, with, minimum, with a minimum, minimal budget and antiquated equipment.
3: Exactly, exactly. I think I think they've done an outstanding job. Um, and you know, this is again when, when you have systems that are uh, really linked together, and, and one goes down, and you don't have a backup readily available, uh, people notice. Especially when it's early morning, and you're on your trying to get on your six a.m. flight across the country.
0: Well, I certainly hope things improve in the skies uh, right across North America for the rest of January. <laughs> uh, Stephen Segrest, thank you so much for your time tonight. Thank you, Ben.
4: Good, great to be on. <laughs>
0: Welcome
4: down.
0: Welcome down. yeah laundromats used to have quite the um quite the place in our collective culture didn't they that's the detergents of course from way back let's take off uh, a spin if you if you give it uh if you allow me that pun on the leader of the pack of course i've spent time in laundromats i suspect we all have you know back in the day even when i had my first apartments they didn't always have a washer dryer so suddenly you'd find yourself in the laundromat they all had a distinctly, I mean, back in my day, they were all sort of distinctly kind of gloomy in some ways, They all sort of the same lighting, but there was something kind of charming about them. I don't know if you've ever seen the movie, My Beautiful Laundrette, that's a British movie that was made back in the 80s, that was uh, with Daniel Day-Lewis, that was excellent, set in a laundromat in England. Um, You know, you'd save your coins, try to figure out exactly when you needed to go. Do you go out while your stuff is washing? Do you leave your stuff behind? There was always a few machines and a few dryers that you just knew worked best for some reason. You got more, you know, your coins lasted longer. Who knows? It was, But there was a real art to it. And you could occasionally meet people there and chat too. Not often. You know, I used to kind of get in and out, but you could. Of course, they're disappearing. You may have noticed there are just fewer and fewer of them around, and there's lots of reasons for it. Uh, you could probably guess, you know. Rents are up. Uh, lots of people have washer dryers now. Utility costs are up, repairing the machines. All that stuff is up. So, you know, I guess, uh, and people are retiring, like a lot of businesses that have been in families for a long time. So they are sort of slowly vanishing from our landscape. Um, but it doesn't really matter where you wash your clothes. They are important in many ways, at least according to my next guest, who will explain why that is. Um, and, you know, they they serve a purpose that perhaps we don't, that isn't as utilitarian as I may have described just now. And Nancy Pearson is a Victoria-based writer. She's also author of something called The Great Canadian Laundromat Adventure Blog, which is exactly what it sounds like it is. And Nancy joins me now. Thank you so much for your time.
5: Oh, well, thank you, Ben. You sure captured the laundromat experience in your comments there. <laughs>
0: well, I have to say I spent more than a few hours in laundromats yeah. over the years. Uh, yeah. You know, there was something kind of cathartic about getting your clothes clean, but it was uh, it was never an experience you, you looked forward to. But where did your interest <laughs> come from?
5: Um, well, like you, I did rely on laundromats for a number of years when I was renting apartments. Um, but uh, several years ago, one night, my clothes dryer died at home and no amount of kicking it would start it again and it turned out it was going to be several weeks before I could get a replacement. So I ended up going to the laundromat one evening and um, to dry a big load and I came out of it thinking, what's happening with laundromats these days? And, um, and then sometime after that I was a student at the University of Victoria and I had an assignment that um, kind of sparked that little uh, thought again, and I decided to write up a book proposal about laundromats. And
0: It is, yeah, yeah. a fascinating subject. I mean, they are, like so many things, they were a mainstay in just about every neighborhood. And, mm. and ever since I saw your piece in the Globe and Mail, you know, I started to again look around and realize there aren't any, at least where I am. I'm in Victoria, where you are. There weren't. Yep. There are very few in downtown Victoria.
5: Well that's um, right about um sorry to interrupt but no, uh, no, no. about 20 years ago we had about 17 in Victoria and we're down to 5 or 6 now and four have closed since the start of the pandemic. Wow.
0: And that's and that's the same as you mentioned in your piece. Yeah. Uh, we're down from 1780 1784 at the beginning of the century down to right. almost almost just 1000. Um yeah. I didn't realize that they only had, I mean, I I guess you had to think about it, but they don't have that long a history because it hasn't been that long since um, those machines could be installed in something like a laundromat.
5: That's right. What made the difference was there were sort of early versions of places you could take your laundry to where, you know, business owners would do the laundry for you. But in the 1950s, an American fellow invented the coin box so that the machine could... um, become self-serve customers could do it themselves and then that's when laundromats really start to take off
0: and then they became I mean for a long time because it was I mean I think back to when I was a kid we we certainly not many people that I knew I mean growing up in Montreal not many houses had washers and dryers Mm -hmm. they just didn't so you went to the laundromat they were they were there was at least five or six within walking distance from where I grew up
5: yeah It's true. They were really a big part of uh, the neighbourhood.
0: You mentioned, though, that as they disappear, and the reason for the op-ed, or the the, the piece that you wrote, was that uh, we're losing something that they do provide, uh, although many of us might not use them anymore, they still provide a necessary service for a lot of people out there.
5: That's right, and I ended up driving over 15,000 kilometres to find them in Canada. Wow. Crazy. Oh, it's (laughs) Um, great. Yeah, it was quite the adventure. And um, I ended up finding about 120. And what I really started to realize was that they offer so much more than just a place to wash your clothes as quickly as you can and to get out. Um, The ones that have somebody working in them, they provide a lot more um, of a connection. Um, They often do... Um, they offer free services to people that can't afford to do laundry. They'll have like free laundry day or they'll provide the free detergent um, or they'll just actually cover the cost for people when they know they can't do it themselves. Um, They also, there's one in Courtney, British Columbia, where um, there are four agents, social service agencies in the community that work with the laundromat to connect customers to services they might need, sort of health care, um, housing, um, financial support, that sort of thing. So that I think that's something that's really developed over the years in these businesses.
0: Yeah. Tell me a bit about, because you found some other examples of laundromats mm-hmm. uh, serving more than one function. In other words, I guess part of that is, is a survival um, technique. Uh, our executive producer was saying when she was in Jasper. I think she noticed that the big cafe in town yeah, was the laundromat. Was the laundromat was
5: right? I so mean, great. I yeah. met the owners there. Yeah, yeah, and um, the fellow and his wife who owned that. His dad started that laundromat in the nineteen sixties. Oh wow! Still in the family, and they really um, welcome the arts community into their laundromat. Musicians, artists. They. Um, it's a really friendly, fun place to be. Um, But I also went to one in um, Amherst, Nova Scotia, where it's not the sort of laundromat where I would go in and do my own laundry, but I could take it there. And they use it as a training facility for people who are mentally challenged. And it's like a job for them. And they go in and they also get um, other sorts of supports while they're there working, ironing the clothes and washing them. And um, it's a really positive place for them. Um, there's one in Ottawa that's the Community Laundry Cooperative, and um, it's part of a larger service centre in the city. And people pay a nominal membership fee of about $2 a year, and they can use that laundromat. And most of the members or customers are new immigrants, and it's a way for them to become connected with people in the community, other immigrants, um, to gain local job skills because some of them will volunteer there. Uh, There's a social worker who manages the laundromat and she connects the members with ESL training and um, immigrant settlement services. That's another good example.
0: Yeah, I guess if you think about it... Yeah, Washing your clothes is something that we all do, right? Much like eating, it's something that that can be communal. um, And why not take advantage of it? Um, I I noticed one of the things I've noticed of late, and you point this out too, that uh, when you go into laundromats now, a lot more of the machines seem to be broken. I guess there aren't a lot of repair people Mm -hmm. out there these days.
5: Yeah, there's certainly um, several owners talked about how hard it is to get them repaired and how to get parts. And the owner of the laundromat in Whitless Bay, Newfoundland, well, right. so showed me an invoice for repair he had to make once, and the person had to come from St. John's, a two-hour drive away, and then drive back. So he's the laundromat owner's paying for that driving time, as well as the cost of the repair. And it was over a thousand dollars to repair the machine, and uh, it's just not viable. So when a machine breaks, he leaves it now. Where was oh, then? Yeah yeah so, Bay, one of the best yeah. the best town names in the country
0: yeah. you really did you really did a lot of mileage that's that's remarkable what was you mentioned a lot of them, but your overall impression of because I guess when I thought of you know sometimes you <clears> poke my head into a laundry mat and they seem kind of you know there's like they always were, but um you must have seen some vibrancy in them as well still
5: yes, very much so everyone is different, and like when I was driving across northern Ontario which is a very long, lonely highway in Canada. It is, it is <laughs> I came yeah. I came across, across this fantastic laundromat in Marathon, Ontario. Small town, a mill town, I believe. And it was a newly renovated laundromat, bright yellow inside and super clean and new machines. Nobody was in there, but some machines were going. So obviously somebody had popped in to do laundry and popped out to maybe go to the bank or something. Um, But it was a really refreshing little place to be. Um, Other ones host like um, art exhibits. Um, They allow music videos to be shot in them um, or movies. Uh, It's just there's artwork on the walls. They're really, really fun places to be and the people are really nice to chat with. Or you can sit and just observe. (laughs)
0: Yeah, just watch the clothes spin as I used to do and read a book. Um, I guess in that sense then, even though we're seeing them disappear, you get the impression that they're not going away.
5: I really hope they're not. I um, was in Toronto in October and the owner of the Beach Solar Laundromat um, took me on his drive around as he dropped off clean laundry and picked up laundry to take back to the shop um, so he does the wash, dry, fold service and pickup and delivery. And he had stories about every customer, like the elderly couple, the woman had just had hip surgery, and her husband had Alzheimer's. So she can't get to the laundromat, and there's no machines in her building. Or there may be, but she can't get down the stairs. So it's a really necessary service in so many ways.
0: Yeah. Yeah, yeah no, it's uh, – it, what a, what, uh, what, I mean, it really is – I'm so happy you went on that long drive because again, it's just something <laughs> I've been thinking about. I, I we were in um, Key West not long ago, and there was a laundromat up the corner, up the street from us. And I thought, wow, it's been a long time since I've seen a laundromat. <laughs> so that was
5: yeah. Uh, and in yeah. the U.S., they're huge. Some of them have 300 machines. Yeah, remarkable. Well, yeah. I, and so
0: what? What will you do with with all this information you're, that you've gathered on your <laughs> long journey? Yeah.
5: Well, I am actually working on what I hope will become a book about it that will include. Photographs, because a lot of the, long, well, several of the laundromats I went to have actually closed permanently already, and um, which is a great loss. But I've captured them in my photographs. And I do have an agent in Toronto who is working with me to find a publisher. Well, so that's I look, I'm really I look hoping to, to preserve this for posterity.
0: In the meantime, you can read the Great Canadian Laundromat Adventure blog, of course. You can find that's some information right. there. Uh, Nancy Pearson, thank you so much for sharing your journey with us tonight. That's uh, what a fascinating topic.
5: Oh, thank you, Ben.
0: And that's sort of what happened today with this whole furor that erupted yesterday, thanks to a Bloomberg article uh, where the U.S. Consumer Product Safety Commission, someone there, talked about a move to perhaps ban gas stoves. Well, it turns out today that the head of the same commission came out and said the agency has no plan to ban gas stoves. In fact, it can't even if it wanted to. Um, one of his colleagues said a ban was an option yesterday, and again, it was it was it created the biggest furor. Um, but there is a reason for this. Um, there's a reason why, and it's been looked at for a long time about the impact of gas stoves in indoor settings. Now, what is You know, just how bad are they? Well, you know, health Health Canada, for instance, doesn't see a problem. We have ways of regulating these things, but there have been you know studies in the past and research um, that shows that they do cause some health and respiratory issues, perhaps. So, we wanted to try to figure out what exactly was going on because suddenly everyone was talking about gas stoves. Although, and I'll say this again, so we don't have a failure to communicate, they are not looking at banning them in the U.S. because Yesterday they had politicians, you've been watching Fox, they had politicians coming out essentially saying, you know, sort of intimating that there'd be people coming into people's homes and ripping them out and running away with them and saying that this would never happen, you know, I'm not going to allow this to happen. So it became another one of those sort of culture war things in the U.S. suddenly and very quickly. There will be no ban, but here are some things you should know about gas stoves, because that's what this was all about, right, John Levy? is the chair of the Department of Environmental Health at Boston University's School of Public Health. And he joins us now with more on this. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Well, this uh, this one created quite the firestorm, but it certainly shed some light on something I don't think many people had been paying attention to, which is a fair amount of research being done into the health impacts, specifically the res- respiratory impacts of gas stoves. So what does the research say?
1: So th- this has been something that's been studied for many years and, and many decades, you know, really understanding what it means to be running a gas stove in your home, which it, if you think about it, it makes sense. If, you're, if you are have an, an open flame in your home and, and gas running, it's going to contribute to some amount of pollution. And there's two things that that we know that when you put them together, it makes logical sense why we're talking about this now. So one is that nitrogen dioxide is emitted from gas stoves. So when you're burning fuel in the home, it emits nitrogen dioxide, which is a product of combustion along with other pollutants and levels can get pretty high in the home in the short term. We also know separately, again, for many decades that nitrogen dioxide is a respiratory irritant. So if you have asthma, it's going to make your asthma worse and it can affect people with other respiratory disease. So if you put those two pieces together, the connection between gas stoves and making asthma worse is pretty clear and has been known for quite some time.
0: When you look at what was being talked about yesterday, though, it seemed like it uh, we jumped ahead of quite a few steps all at once. Um, I guess today it was walked back. We're not looking at a ban, but, but obviously uh, health officials in, in many parts of the world are looking at this with a fairly serious eye.
1: Yeah, and, and I think it's it's certainly timely to think about gas stoves. I, I think broadly we've had more attention on the indoor environment. I think, you know, since the start of the pandemic, just a realization of, of the importance of indoor spaces and potential exposures. And there's been growing emphasis on climate change and the need to take mitigation measures, which can include electrification of gas appliances, such as stoves in the home. So I think there's this confluence of factors that leads us to look anew at this issue that has, as I said, really been a, a focus since the 70s and 80s, really, in the literature, as well as at government agencies.
0: Why would it rear, I mean, you just mentioned it, I suppose, that, that increased awareness about indoor air quality, specifically as the pandemic hit us, as well as as climate change uh, mitigation measures, uh, but it seems to have really erupted all of a sudden. Um you know, is a ban necessary? There was also discussion of potentially putting in some sort of limits on, on on you know, sort of the same things, emissions limits, the same thing we see on cars.
1: Yeah, so I think things erupted recently for a variety of reasons, but including a recent publication that estimated that about 13 percent of asthma in the United States was attributable to gas in the home. And that certainly raised a lot of eyebrows and drew a lot of attention to the topic. And so it has then led to a much broader conversation now about what the science is and and what that means and and what to do about it. And I think it's important to recognize that a lot can be done in homes if you have a gas stove. So for one, if you have a range hood and it vents outdoors, not just recirculate, if if you run that when you're cooking that can bring down exposures a good amount. Opening the windows is also valuable to try to increase ventilation. So there are a lot of steps that can be taken even with a gas stove to bring down exposures quite a bit. And I, I think this hopefully has led to more recognition of those steps and, and the importance of those steps, as well as just recognition of the fact that many homes with gas stoves don't actually have a range hood that vents outdoors. Most gas appliances are required to be vented to the outdoors uh the the stove is not one of them and so i think that that gap and that disparity i think has gotten a lot more attention in in the past weeks
0: as always these issues always become politicized very quickly do you think we could have a rational conversation about this without it getting uh without everyone separating into two camps and calling either tyranny or or something otherwise
1: I would hope so. And I think that the conversation has moved rapidly, but, you know, no one is going to march into people's homes and extricate their gas stoves. So I think what we should really be talking about is, you know, do do these appliances contribute exposures in homes? And the answer, of course, is yes, and has been yes for many years. And then what can we do about that? And, And again, I think there are sensible measures that can be taken, sensible policies that can be put into place to really try to ensure that that, the many homes that have gas stoves right now have the best possible indoor air quality.
0: Because this isn't the first time we've reconsidered something that has been sitting in a home or in, in some sort of indoor environment for many, many, many years. I mean, there's there's a long list of things that we once had indoors that we no longer allow to be indoors or emissions that we once allowed that we no longer allow.
1: For sure. And and many people, I think, have drawn the parallel to secondhand smoke, where for many years we took it at face value that smoking indoors in places like restaurants and bars was fine and there was no way that that could be removed. And policies have since come into place to try to create cleaner and healthier indoor environments. And now that really is the status quo in in most settings. And so, you know, it's, it's unclear what the trajectory will be for gas stoves, but there's at the very least, again, increased awareness that this is an issue, that there are many homes in many settings where the gas stove is the top source of exposure to indoor air pollution, at least for for pollutants like nitrogen dioxide. And, And really just now that we have that awareness, trying to figure out what steps we take to reduce people's exposures.
0: And as you mentioned already, there are things that individual homeowners, individual gas stove owners can do themselves within their homes
1: yeah, again you know, ventilation measures are important there's other little steps if you have a very young child keeping them away from the stove is a good idea anyway and and certainly keeping them farther away from the stove during cooking time reduces their exposure to nitrogen dioxide there's even little steps like cooking on the back burner rather than the front burner when it's possible to do so depending on what you're cooking so you know, being just cognizant of the fact that this is an exposure and trying to take sensible measures to try to reduce that exposure.
0: Yeah, I was thinking. You know, very few people will will, will roll their gas-powered barbecue into the house, right? Um, and yet here we are with gas stoves. Uh, John Levy, thank you so much for uh, providing some clarity on that. Uh, you're welcome. Thank you. <laughs> We were just talking about uh, this firestorm that was created yesterday when an interview with a news agency appeared to show that a uh, member uh, of a consumer agency in the States was looking at possibly that one of the things they could be considering was a ban of gas stoves. Now, the head of that agency walked out, the commission actually, came out today and said, that's not what's going to happen. They're not even considering, they, can, they couldn't even do it if they wanted to. But it did raise some questions about uh, the impact of gas stoves on health and respiratory problems, specifically in kids, in homes. So that's what kind of led to this, this new study that came out not that long ago that appears to show that up to 13% of asthma cases, or 12.7 to be specific, of childhood asthma cases could be linked to homes with gas stoves. My next guest says, well, wait a second. That that doesn't make <laughs> There are many factors involved in childhood asthma. Why are we looking at stoves? So For a bit of a reality check, here is Dr. Ron Goldman. He's a pediatrics professor at the University of British Columbia. Thanks for your time tonight. Good evening. So this one, I mean, this, the the research on this is not new. It's been going on for ages. But what do we know about the impact of gas stoves in homes? And there's been a lot of talk about it in the last 24 hours.
4: Absolutely right. And it's important that there is a conversation about this, about asthma, and about generally how can we be healthier? Uh, Gas emissions are a factor in our health and that's true for our children's health. But connecting immediately or directly between your stove at home and the development of a very complex disease like asthma is a bit premature. Um, You know, there there are a lot of other factors uh, that are both at home and outside. I mean, the air quality where we live, we're very fortunate. But in some places, it's not as good, and the, the emission in those areas is, is worse than your gas uh, stove at home. Um, we have fireplaces. Those can be uh, potentially risky because they may emit some gas. So all of those are other factors, and just uh, I don't want anyone to rush out the door as we speak now, go and try and buy a new uh, stove just because of that.
0: Yeah, lugging their gas stove out the front door as we speak. I mean, I think that was part of the problem is anytime people see the word ban, they start to think, wait a second, what don't I know? Um, And so that's your advice, right? I mean, don't, but clearly like uh, agencies like Health Canada are aware of these, this research, right? I mean, we know about it and they're perfectly um, capable of making sure that we don't put dangerous things in our homes for the most part.
4: I think so. Health Canada is doing research all the time on those things. And there's no question there is a connection between gas emission and health. Uh, uh, but there are ways to mitigate those risks, especially at home. You know, that's why we have a fan uh, above the range. That's why it's important to open a window or open a door while cooking or uh, while there, are, there is gas at home. Ventilation is critical. We know it from schools. We know it from home. That, that's a key to get fresh air.
0: Yeah, I guess, you know, through the height of the pandemic, we spent a lot more time thinking about the quality of our indoor air. And I was speaking to my last guest, Jay Levy from uh, the University, of, from Boston University. And he was talking a bit about that as well, that one of the reasons that this has come up again now is that we've been made a lot more aware of, of indoor air quality because of the pandemic.
4: You're absolutely right. I think it's an important topic. It raised the, the bar to the fact that we need to care for the air we breathe. It's true with the cars we use, uh, the fireplaces at home and schools. And, and, you know, during the pandemic, everyone talked about the air quality in a little container called an airplane. And we're all more conscious of the fact that this is circulating air, but surprisingly with good filters. And that's why the air on on airplanes is actually better than we thought. So it's a conversation. It's great to have it, including in your show. And I think we need to continue and discuss this, not only the the air quality, but also what causes asthma.
0: Oftentimes, I mean, is this the kind of question that you sometimes get from parents with, with kids who have asthma about what the possible causes could be? Do you mention gas stoves at all? So absolutely, parents want to know, especially parents
4: of children that have asthma. You know, they want to know why my child or one of my children have asthma with exacerbations and they need to go to the doctor and take puffers. And my other child doesn't have it or other, other kids in school. So this is definitely a question that comes up. I, I think that uh, people are not generally asking about uh, gas stoves, but they're, they're asking about what can we do at home? So we talked about ventilation. Uh, we talked about maybe maintaining service to those uh, appliances. You know, fireplace. It's really important to have service on a yearly basis to make sure there's no carbonic uh, uh, CO leak from the from the fireplace. Same thing with the stove. Make sure it's functional and there there's no issue with it. So servicing it, ventilating, and uh, making sure that uh you know, we, we breathe as little as possible of those gaz, gas gas that, that emit from those appliances.
0: Yeah, of course. I have to admit that growing up, we had a gas stove. I have, I've had a gas stove. I don't have one now, but for many, many years, we had a gas stove. I don't remember us paying much attention to ventilation back in the day either, but that was a, a different time, of course. Well, I guess if there's anything that's good about this is that it's uh, allowed us to talk about it a bit, even though everyone seemed to get uh, pretty worked up about the idea that some ban was coming.
4: Yeah, I think the ban is is, uh, quite far away. I think it's important for people to do the things they can do to to avoid health concerns. But uh, I don't want people to think that they need to change immediately the the situation where they live and spend money on on something that the impact on the development of asthma among their children is going to be somewhat limited and somewhat uncertain because... Although we have calculations, and you mentioned the study that was done, scientifically interesting, but it, it didn't represent what happens in homes. It represented a calculation of what might be caused for asthma. We, we need to be cautious how we interpret this data.
0: Yeah, absolutely. We don't want people to panic. Uh, Dr. Goldman, thank you so much for that reality check. I appreciate it.
4: Have a good night. Thank you.
0: Thank you. This next story is really interesting because it's been talked about quite a bit of late in Ottawa. So Radio Canada, French CBC did a story late last week um, about McKinsey. Now they're a major consulting firm, massive. They have, you know, they do work all over the world. They work with all kinds of folks, all kinds of governments. They're really a major, major company, but they've done a lot of business with the Trudeau government. Um, How much? Well, according to reports, the firm earned $2.2 million in federal government work when Stephen Harper's Conservatives were in power between 2006 and 2015. Since then, that number is more like 66 million in the last seven years under the Liberals. Now by government spending standards, that isn't enormous, but it's a lot of money after all. And Opposition MPs have now voted to launch a committee investigation into this relationship. They want to know more about what's going on here. Why is this one firm, McKinsey, even though they're massive, getting so much work from this government? What are they doing? What's it for? Don't we have a federal civil service? Here's Pierre Polyev yesterday, the opposition leader, explaining what it is he'd like to know.
3: So we want to know what all this money was for. We also want to know about the outsized influence of this company in the operation of our government and our democracy.
0: Well, the Prime Minister responded to questions about it today. He says Procurement Minister Helena Jacek and Treasury Board President Mona Fortier will be looking into those contracts after that Radio Canada report. Um, that report also mentioned civil servants being unhappy with some of, these, uh, some of the work that McKinsey's doing, or at least um, some of the recommendations that are being made. The bigger problem here, though, isn't just this particular uh, situation. It really is, because all governments use consultants to some extent right um, they are they do essential work at times other times you know I, I from what I know and what I've seen companies use them as a, managers use them as a crutch they essentially bring them in to justify decisions they need justification for sometimes that's required but we have a federal bureaucracy in fact that federal bureaucracy is also growing uh, significantly their wage bills up 50% in the last seven years so we have more civil servants. Than we ever have before and we have more consultants doing consultancy work than we ever have before and it feels like we're spending more money on all of it um it's been called you know a consultocracy is a bit of the issue and that is part of the real problem here why do we have a whole group like a third a third pillar here you know we have politicians we have the bureaucrats the civil servants that's how it's supposed to work they're all accountable to us ultimately we believe Um, So where do the consultants come in and why are there so many of them being used? Why? Who are they? And and do we know enough about what the work is, what the work that there is, what they're doing, and whether it's worth the money that's being spent on it? Someone who spent a lot of time looking into this is investigative freelance journalist Justin Ling. He's author of The Bug-Eyed and Shameless Newsletter, and he joins me now. Thank you for your time.
2: Yeah, thanks for having me.
0: So you've looked into this. I mean, McKinsey are certainly not the only consulting firm out there, but they seem to have developed a very close relationship with this government. Uh, What did you find?
2: Yeah, I I mean, we've been increasingly aware of the role that consultants play in our government over the last decade or so. It was Stephen Harper who first sort of pioneered the use of consultants for everything. Consulting has, has had a role in shaping all manners of our government, from the way we build health systems to basically every major IT systems to how much certain people at crown corporations get paid. I mean, consultants are increasingly called in to advise on every manner. But it's been the Trudeau government that has exploded the use of these third party firms, and in particular, McKinsey Company. And you know that's particularly not interesting because McKinsey. Increasingly, one of the world's most popular consulting firms, but it's also one of the most controversial. It has had a hand in helping get America addicted to the painkiller and uh, opioid Oxycontin. It has worked hand in glove uh, with the communist regime in China, including, uh, according to some documents, having a hand in uh, helping develop the system of of sort of detention and slavery that has targeted the Uyghur minority in Xinjiang they have worked with uh, Russian oligarchs they have you know consulted for the immigration customs enforcement agency in the US helping manage their child detention system so this is a consulting firm that according to many who are you know very ardent watchers of this company they are a consulting firm that will consult for anybody for anything uh, and are in some cases willing to play both sides of the fence both government and private industry countries that are technically opposed to one another mckinsey is willing to do it so there are a lot of questions to be asked about exactly what role mckinsey plays in the canadian government and why the canadian government is so adamant about giving them so much money
0: you know just how much money have we given them compared to what uh, what was being given them under stephen harper i gather it's been Quite the jump.
2: There was very few contracts that went to McKinsey and company under the Harvard government, uh, a handful here and there. Since the Trudeau government took over we're talking a- somewhere in the range to, from, from 65 million to about $85 million over the past eight years, which might not sound like a massive amount of money uh, in the government space, but these are some pretty hefty contracts, and there's a lot of signs that this is going to continue growing at a potentially even exponential pace. McKinsey has been basically listed as one of the prime consulting firms in Ottawa, and I think there's good reason to think they may become the biggest consulting firm for the Canadian government in the next couple of
0: years. And just how competitive are these contracts? Because I gather from your writing and, and others that uh, a lot of these were not put out to tender.
2: That's right. Some of them were not competitive at all. Some of them were sole sourced. And in some cases, you saw a process where McKinsey uh, won a competition, uh, beating out a a handful of other big consulting firms, but then uh, would pursue the contract for a few years and then get a sole source re-up or a new contract that would keep them working for that agency into the foreseeable future. In some cases, uh, certainly in the US, we've had uh, reports, uh, some investigations, some audits that have suggested that governments actually rig bids for McKinsey. they will often take McKinsey even though they are one of, if not the most expensive option, because they have been basically coached into doing so by this consulting firm or because they're obsessed with hiring McKinsey. And there's a whole bunch of reasons for that. uh, But there's good reason to think that part of it is self-interest. McKinsey is notorious for hiring functionaries, civil servants, bureaucrats, and regulators straight out of their government jobs after those contracts get awarded. Uh, And in some cases, I have found uh, in the Canadian Public Service, you do have former McKinsey uh, alumni who go on to work for government departments that then hire McKinsey. So there is certainly a veneer of competition, but in some cases, um, it, it, is, it is much less realistically competitive and capitalist than you might expect in the scenario.
0: And one of the concerns, here, I would imagine, is just transparency, right? I don't think anyone's accusing McKinsey in Canada of doing anything wrong, but it certainly could use a little sunlight.
2: Well, you know, in France right now there's an ongoing investigation that is basically alleging the Macron government, Emmanuel Macron the president, uh, his ties to McKinsey are so deep that he is basically sending business their way, rigging the system in favor of McKinsey, using them in some cases for his political party at the same time he's using them for his government. In some cases using them to replace the public service in France with McKinsey, and there's an ongoing investigation alleging everything from tax evasion to fraud to who knows what else potentially illegal campaign contributions. So you know there is reason to think that McKinsey uses its political leverage in, in sometimes inappropriate ways here in Canada, McKinsey's former global managing partner, Dominic Barton is a close advisor to the prime minister and has served on a blue chip committee, even while he was still working at McKinsey. He later uh, was appointed as ambassador to China, a major McKinsey client. So there are actual conflict of interest questions here that need asking, but, but you're quite right. that the prime issue here is a question of transparency there was never a debate in the house of commons there was never an election campaign that talked about this there was never a, you know a question asked to the country are you comfortable with this level of government operations being outsourced. Much of this has been done behind closed doors. The contracts we're talking about have rarely been published in any way, shape, or form. If I want to, for example, see how the F-35 procurement process went, I can go and pull up all of those solicitation documents. I mean, not all of them, but a bunch of public-facing ones. I can look at what the uh, Department of Defense was asking of contractors. I can see some of the proposals that were sent in by the various bidders. I can see the process that went there. You do not see any... Any of that when it comes to McKinsey. In fact, many of the documents that McKinsey files to the government are marked with a little clause at the bottom that says, exempt from the Access to Information Act, which means that I, as a journalist, can't even request those documents. Now, there's good reason to think that that's not even legal, Under the Access to Information Act. Unfortunately, the true government has also hollowed out that act in such a way that is now basically toothless. So there is a culture of secrecy that is going on here that has presided over the shift towards consultants. It's making it easier to keep decisions out of the public eye, and it's making it easier to send money into the private sector with very little, little oversight or scrutiny.
0: Um, One of the concerns here, Justin, I think is, you know, we have a federal bureaucracy, quite a Mm -hmm. large one, a growing one at that these days. What exactly are these consultants meant to be doing that the existing public service can't?
2: So, you know, let me give you the the most optimistic, positive read imaginable, because the reality is we're always going to need third-party consultants in some way, shape, or form, right? There will be circumstances where there is not the expertise inside the civil civil service. They don't understand the information technology at play, and, and we can't expect them to. Perhaps it has to do with, you know, an overseas market. You know, I, I wouldn't expect uh, the average employee of Economic Development Canada to understand what the agricultural sector of Bhutan looks like so there's a lot of reasons why you might need a consultant and in some cases you might want to figure out what's wrong with the civil service what's wrong with the bureaucracy is there a culture shift that needs to happen is there a toxicity inside the public service that's at play these are all good reasons to go outside and in a limited and and, and you know short-term way, bring in outside help. The hope in doing all of that is that those outside consultants can improve the capacity internally, not, as we're currently seeing, create a long-term dependency on their consulting. Now, what's actually happening or, or what's the risk of what could happen here? I think you run the risk of creating what is essentially a shadow bureaucracy, a group of of third party, um, you know, private employees who are increasingly taking over the work of the public sector, which I don't think is actually good long term. I think you run the risk of of laundering advice and wasting money right I, mean, I know for a fact that that both civil servants and political staff feel like they have. To go out to these third party consultants in order for something to get approved. There's a feeling, like for bureaucrats anyway, that political staff don't trust them. They don't like them. They don't like their opinion. They don't like their analysis. So if they want to get something approved, they need to go to McKinsey or KPMG or whoever and say, Can you write a report about this thing? And the report may end up saying the exact same thing the civil servants were saying all along, but it takes that stamp from a third party, from a private company, in order for a minister staff to finally say okay good plan let's do it um you know, that is 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 a functional you know structural problem that can't be put covered in band-aids forever um you know there's also a real risk here that, that third-party consultants are doing the work um, that both civil servants don't want to do and also that shouldn't be done. In the U.S., um, McKinsey was brought on to slash costs for the immigration detention system. In the process, it may have led um, to some of the uh, egregious scenes you saw during the Trump administration of families, children being stuck in in freezing cold detention facilities, malnourished, separated uh, from each other, you know that at least in some part is the result of third party companies coming in having no accountability and and delivering what is basically a spreadsheet that says here's how you can cut costs right That's not how our government is supposed to work. When you add when you wedge in this third party consulting class, who are they accountable to? How can we hold their feet to the fire right There's never really any real consequences.
0: Yeah, one of the things I found in my experience was that consultants often know how to bridge the divide between the political class and the bureaucracy. That's their gift. That's what they do. They speak the language politicians want to hear at the same time, understanding how the bureaucracy works, often because they're former bureaucrats or politicians mm-hmm. themselves, right? It's quite a, a canny canny uh, card trick that they pull. Um, this um, The politicization of it, obviously, we've seen the opposition parties step out to say we're going to look into this. Uh, do you have any expectations that any good will come of that?
2: Truth be told, I don't think so, because uh, to be honest with you, any government is going to do this. Um, you've seen the U.S. government, both Biden and Trump. You've seen Macron. You've seen the U.K. government. You've seen South Africa. China. Every single government around the world right now is growing increasingly reliant on companies like McKinsey and in particular McKinsey. I mean, you know, it, it totally out-of-control slush fund spending in the mid-90s and early 2000s in successive governments eventually gave us the sponsorship scandal. And it took that scandal for us to finally come together and say, okay, we need real rules here on how lobbying happens, on how money gets spent. And it led to real accountability, real transparency, uh, and real scrutiny. I don't think we're going to get that here until something really bad happens, until some sort of scandal emerges. And even then, the Trudeau government had has a miserable track record of actually improving transparency and accountability. They have consistently said nice things and skirted the basic reform measures that are necessary in this country to make sure that our money is being well spent, to make sure journalists, the media, academics, activists can actually hold the governments to account uh, and, and to basically create an openness standard. So I, I think the, the opposition are going to say a bunch of nice things. I th- you think you've already heard Pierre Polyev try and link McKinsey to everything from the ArriveCan Can app to, to mentioning, you know, liberal insiders and friends were getting government grants. I think he's trying to go wide with this and make it a generally Justin Trudeau problem instead of being a government problem. Uh, and, and truth be told, I think if Pierre Polyev becomes prime minister, we'll probably see an increased reliance on consultants because he's talking uh, about reducing government costs, which usually means laying people off, which means more consultants. So uh, I'm I'm skeptical that anyone here is being terribly earnest. But I think it's time we kind of stood up and say, you know, we need some adults in the room to oversee how this is happening because a lot of people are getting paid a lot of money and we're not seeing better results. Whether you're looking at the passport lines, whether you're looking at the situation at our airports, which, by the way, McKinsey had a hand in consulting on, uh, whether you're looking at the state of our health system, whether you're looking at the state of our our federal communications, no matter what you're looking at, things aren't working. Pierre Polyev is very right when he talks about that. Things are breaking down. And I don't think McKinsey is helping.
0: No, and that transparency—that lack of transparency is probably no doubt on the advice of some well-paid consultants uh, to this current government. Justin Ling, as always, thank you for your time. Thanks for having me.